Welcome to the Hey Course Dialogue series podcast. In this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Tanya Albert and Dr. Sophia Stoke from the Freie Universiteit Amsterdam to discuss the Peace Palace, home to the International Court of Justice, in a conversation inspired by their recent article in the London Review of International Law, entitled Building of the International Community, a History of the Peace Palace through Transnational Gifts and Local Bureaucracy. In what follows, we discuss the fascinating transnational history behind the building of the Peace Palace, its funding, maintenance, the curious facts and rumours they have uncovered through archival research behind the gifts given by states to the Peace Palace, and much more on the Peace Palace and how it can be considered a material home of the international community. Hope you enjoy. So welcome, Tanya and Sophia. Thank you for joining me today on this podcast. Today, we're going to be talking essentially about your research on the building of the international community, the off there in brackets, and your recent article in the London Review of International Law. You consider in this article how the Peace Palace, home to the International Court of Justice, as many know, and I quote you, provides a material home for the emergent international community and thereby help to sing this imagined community into existence. What did you mean by this, first of all? I mean, lawyers are more used to talking about legal texts, legal instruments. Here you're talking about singing an international community into existence <laughs> through, through a building. Um, what are you trying to tell us? Okay, so, well, maybe um, to start from from something that, that uh, people in the audience might recognize, that the, the Peace Palace, of course, is a very monumental building, uh, something that is, is fascinating uh, when we look at it. And I have been fascinated <laughs> Um, by this building uh, for, for years already, and I uh, always used to take my uh, students on the tour uh, in the palace uh, where they would learn about, well, both international relations and international law and these gifts uh, by the member states on the building. So this, 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 this fascination uh, for the palace uh, goes back a lot of years. Um, and started to become even more fascinating when I realized that this was the first building that was built on behalf of the international community or this first building that would re uh, represent or house um, uh, international community. Mm -hmm. um, and looking into uh, more detail about, so when this, this concept of the international community actually emerged, um, so far what we have discovered is that that was during the 1899 peace conference where it first emerged in the discourse this just talking about international community. Um, and this was actually by a Belgian uh, delegate who was talking about a fraternal approach to international justice. So the idea that states would need to cooperate and to uh, achieve peace through justice rather than uh, through war. Now, this this idea that this was the first building and the importance of this building for the for the emergence of this international community. I think it's really nicely captured by a quote from uh, Bertha von Suttner, uh, who was a peace activist and a Nobel Prize uh, winner. Um, and I would like to quote her here, just because it's a beautiful quote, and it really captures what we were trying to get at uh, in our research. In order for the idea of the international community and, and international uh, justice to become reality, it must take shape in a tangible, visible, living form. The pacifists have been working on such forms, 
conferences, treaties, tribunals, etc., continuously and steadfastly for about two decades. But these things also require their material forms, their easily recognizable visible symbols, and their homes. So this actually captures that idea, right? You can have a concept, you can have an idea, you can have a notion, but uh, it also needs to have a material uh, representation beyond legal text or discourse by by um, uh, elites. So this was basically uh, the starting point for our research to look into this. And um, for another research project, I've been working on ritual theory, and we thought this would actually be an interesting lens to also look at the at the Peace Palace, uh, particularly the lens of gift giving, gift giving as an important practice for or important ritual to build um, alliances, um, and this also gets to what we are well actually to refer back to your point about singing the international community into existence, this performative aspect. What you're doing is not just representing something that already exists. But by giving a gift, you are building an alliance. Mm. So it actually creates something that didn't exist uh, before. And this goes back to, to Marcel Mousse's uh, work on, on gift giving. And another thing that happens or that, that, that we got from, from ritual theory, uh, and in particular Catherine Bell here, is that by giving gifts or an, engaging in rituals, you mm. are uh, negotiating um, authority, self, and society. So it, it creates a particular kind of bond. I have a, I have a question here on, on ritual theory hmm? immediately. So I remember once hearing, I can't remember the book uh, to save my life here, <laughs> but um, I remember uh, being involved in a course once where the ritualization of law was explained as something that's quite important. So even down to the judges entering in a certain way, uh, the specific sentences that they say, the Outfits that they wear, right? To a, to a certain extent, the outfits judges wear for many can seem ridiculous, right? There's a gown in, in the UK, at least when you go, there's some wigs still made out of specific hair. Um, does this, does ritual theory talk about a beginning point? Because international law, to a certain extent, began before the building of the International Court of Justice. So where in your mind does this ritual begin already for the international legal community? I don't expect you to have a, a <laughs> concrete answer, but from your research, did, did you see this as very much a beginning point? Is that what you're saying with the Peace Palace? or I, I think that that is sort of our entry point. So also the idea of performativity, becoming by enacting, so yeah. then it makes sense. But I think also we wanted to step away from this sort of more traditional view on what is a ritual and that that is then because that's a very recognizable ritual um and we also really looked at at the 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 the, the the backstage of this and also how it began for us was also a question okay but how did this did did this happen mm -hmm. so how did it went and then we quote doing more from visualizable to imaginable to real and then we wanted to make this also tangible so i think that this was i think this is 
um, where we started with the ritual and also the, the, the building as, as performing and constituting the international community. It needs a home to actually exist. And then we sing it into existence. But then we went a step further and say, okay, how did this happen? And then we went into the archives and we just said, do you have anything on the gifts and the building? And they came in a box <laughs> with stuff. <laughs> and then it becomes material as well, right? So, so it is, there is stuff about this. And, um, and we dived into uh, these letters between states and um, between the, the Carnegie Foundation, uh, which were really trivial in many ways. So it was about um, the size of the gifts and, and the transportation. And But you see also world history passing by because ships could not ship to shipments because of these these wars going on etc so it's it's really um for us this is also the 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 materiality of it um is very much in in that so i think that that is what we also wanted to to make it tangible um and to see how it was also super messy so the ritual when you describe it like that is also very clean Mm -hmm. very organized And we wanted also maybe to, to, to expose the chaos behind it, which we thought was really interesting. Also, maybe by accident, because we got to these materials and we got really interested in these correspondences. To add to that, so, so we're not particularly uh, interested to define uh, this as a particular ritual. Uh, and here again, and Catherine Bell is also useful because she is not necessarily interested in this kind of categorization or what 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 would we identify as a ritual and what would, would be not right so that would be more of an ontological approach we're not necessarily interested in that but what we did is for us uh, ritual theory provided a helpful lens to look at how this international community came into being uh, and another aspect apart from from gift giving as a concrete ritualized practice um, that we found interesting with ritual is uh, Ritual has this kind of dual dynamic inside it. So on the one hand, ritual uh, means uh, sacralizes something. You know, you have this big ideal and it becomes like wholly transcendental, etc. And at the same time, ritual is something very concrete, right? It happens on the ground. Uh, it needs this material grounding. And it's this dual dynamic that we saw, that we thought like, yeah, that, that's actually also happening with, with the Peace Palace, uh, when you have first this ideal of an international community and this ideal of a fraternal approach. And of course, international law existed before, but this idea that we would be united as a community working towards the same goal, that is an important transformation in um, international legal discourse uh, uh, that happened at the Peace uh, Conference. And the Peace Palace then becomes a very concrete way of materializing that. So you both have this sacred aspect of this ideal Mm -hmm. that is almost too big to capture. And then you have the very concrete, like, okay, we need to make this happen. And then how that happens and the kind of bumpy road to Mm -hmm. actually materializing this, all the bureaucracy that goes into this. Um, Yeah, that's what we got really interested in when when diving into the the archives. So so let's talk about that then. Let's talk. And I remember you also said that an original consideration was to call it a temple. Yes. If I remember correctly, right? This this sacralization really comes through even the naming of the building. So let's talk about how you got your hand stuck into the archives. How did the Peace Palace come to be? What did you find out? 
What did we, we find out? Now, well, what we found, because there's also a lot that we did not find, <laughs> or not yet. <laughs> not yet. Yeah, so a lot of, we found a lot of questions. Um, but I think what God is interested and also what is a sort of um, key theme in the, in the paper is this, um, this really strange web of transnational actors that are involved in this process. And also, um, the rather curious role of the Carnegie Foundation and that, that consisted of these Dutch elite men who then also decided at a certain point on, on what is beauty. Yeah. What is good enough to be in the peace palace? Um, but it had, they had a really strange role. So in, 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 uh, both in, in the, 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 the we, we discussed two kinds of gifts, uh, the gift of Carnegie in like the monetary gift and the gifts of the states. And I think in both, um, scenarios, they, they play a very, um, interesting role. Um, so I think that's one aspect. Um, and, and also really the, how quickly you go from grand idea to really bickering about, um, I don't want my chandelier in the library because it's not on public display, which is actually a huge theme, but it, it, in, if you see it in such a letter, it's, it seems so trivial, but the concerns of states about their publicness of their gifts also for us really opens up these, these, um, yeah, this, this sort of situation where you have, um, both this ideal of a community, uh, but also states really want, wanting to make their mark and to be individuals and to be seen, uh, and to be appreciated and praised for, for what they give to the palace, what they give to the community. So I thought that was a, a nice dynamic that, that came out really well. But, but, but to see that in the form of these very trivial discussions, uh, I think for us was how you see that this grand ideal, the materialization of that is very localized and very bureaucratically uh, embedded in a, in, a, in a strange transnational network. I think that for us is a, is a thing that we really um, thought was remarkable. Yeah, and it's also this this role of Andrew Carnegie, right? So so we, yeah. we have this perspective of gift giving and then most obviously everyone knows about these diplomatic gifts that the member states gave to the court. But of course, there's also this initial gift, the monetary gift of currency of the time. Uh, I don't have the right amount. Um, <laughs> a lot more now. It's, it's a lot. It's <laughs> like, I think, 30 billion, if I recall wow. correctly, in, yeah. in, in contemporary uh, currency uh, that was donated by by Carnegie. But, but his whole uh, role... Uh, it's also interesting because we've been talking about, so we have the international community. First, it was a community of states, and now we have these transnational developments, globalization, where this is not solely a state-to-state or in- intergovernmental uh, affair anymore. But if you look at how this international community actually came to be, there was this huge private actor involved from the get-go. So it was a public uh, pr- uh, private-public partnership mm-hmm. uh, from the very beginning. And this whole idea that transnationalism comes after internationalism is, is, is well, based on our disciplinary narrative. But yeah. if you look at how this actually came to be, it is transnational from the get-go. On the one hand, because of the involvement of Carnegie, uh, uh, so, so it's, it's public-private partnership. But also then if you look at this ideal... Uh, internationalization and then how it needs to be grounded locally. It, it has to how find its place somewhere is. and how <laughs> problematic that is and how the parties were also aware of that. 
So the Dutch government, on the one hand, was proud, of course, that you know the Hague would be uh, would be uh, housing the court, but at the same time they were very careful. It's like, but this is an international project, and it should not become a Dutch affair. And it became very Dutch because it was like all this this local bickering over where in the Hague uh, the court could be housed. Um, but there was also an issue, for instance, uh, very technical details that we became interested when uh, interested in when looking uh, in the archives. Was the issue like, but what if the Dutch government receives that gift? Then it will make a profit because of taxes. And we cannot have that because it would be scandalous if the Dutch government would actually receive taxes over the gift. And then there was this whole um, exchange about how they could legally arrange it, that the Dutch would not profit from these taxes uh, while receiving uh, the gift. If you could um, explain a little bit here, who was Andrew Carnegie? Because he wasn't Dutch, no. right? So the Netherlands was receiving a gift from this individual who's from America? Yeah, right. so he's, well, he's, yeah. he's Scottish. He's Scottish, but he—I think he nationalized into. He, yes. he calls himself an American citizen, but okay. he he, uh, he has a Scottish background, uh, and he was a steel magnate. So he made a lot of uh, money. Uh, he was also a philanthropist, um, and he was involved in the peace um, uh, peace through law movement. So there was this huge movement. Um, that he was he was also involved with. So so when this idea came up at the peace conference, it was actually um, the Russian uh, uh, delegate who actually um, approached American ambassador to say, "Well, you have all these billionaires. Could we not <laughs> approach them to actually them? fund this international project?" There is right. like a literal quote uh, from him in our paper. So, so that's when they started approaching him from from early nineteen hundred onwards, and it took. Uh, three years of going back and forth, and letters he was and he really afraid also that 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 people would like that he would be like this magnificent gift that was too yeah, yeah, much, yeah. and that people would say, "Oh, what a like, he's bragging with his money." And but even there, you said there was this in his language. You can there tell that he was, like, there's a conflict, right? There is a conflict. Yeah, I yeah. think so. But it is an interesting that that like you see in these letters uh, that he's. Almost a bit ashamed of giving this much much wow. money, but then also he wanted to have a say in where the money was going, and he was not really happy with how it went with the Dutch government. But uh, it's but um, it's interesting how this how this yes. whole discussion about the ownership and to what extent this is a Dutch affair. And if you look at the amount of money that the Dutch are contributing to yeah. the palace, you would say, well, you know, you are contributing. Uh, quite a lot, but then this bickering over the the ownership and and the maintenance, which was also actually an issue, mm-hmm. um, uh, when the notarial deed had to be signed by uh, Carnegie. I don't know if we need to get into this, but that was yet another technical detail to avoid this the Dutch government from from receiving the taxes. The solution was that there should be a foundation set up by a private citizen. And then the Dutch government would not get the taxes. So the solution was that Carnegie would set up a foundation, and that that way uh, his gift could be received wow. by the by the by yeah, the but foundation. But maintenance was a crucial point in this. Yes, because he expected the crucial. states 
also yeah. to be part of that. So this was after like four years of going back and forth about this gift. And then there was a draft notarial deed and they went to uh, Skibo, the the um, uh, Scottish castle of Carnegie, to have him sign the notarial deed. And then at the very last moment, like after four years, he refused to sign because he was afraid that uh, by him signing, this would uh, relieve the member states or give the member states a reason to kind of take a step back and not be fully committed to the project anymore. Uh, so he did not want to sign a notarial deed uh, and a new deed had to be drafted in which they added a sentence that the deed would not uh, relieve the, the signatory powers from their commitments to uh, to the uh, permanent uh, court of arbitration uh, at that point. So, so you have all these details <laughs> and these like technicalities uh, that became so. And some of them are still unresolved. So the yeah. the, the the ownership and who ownership who owns what, and also still gifts are coming in and who yeah. is the gift for? That's still is the gift. It's a, a conflict. Is it is it for the ICJ? Yeah. Is it for the Peace Palace? Is it for the Carnegie Foundation? Those matters are unresolved and remain unresolved. So, so let's talk about that now because we've talked about this big gift given by Andrew Carnegie, but throughout there's been you know, we've been teasing this idea of the gift given from states. So, for anyone who's visited the Peace Palace. Uh, or has been given a tour of the ICJ, they're familiar. Right? It's always it's always part of the tour. Yeah. This statue was given by this state, this chandelier the by that given state. By Germany. Even the floor is by Italy. Absolutely. Um, what was what was going on here? Why why is so much of this building gifted? What was at play between the states when these gifts were being given? How was it organized? Was it organized even? So the idea stems from the second peace conference where they had this vow. They, they made, they called a vow, uh, where they say we, like all the member states will send their, their finest specimens or their finest materials or artworks, um, to the palace so that it would be like of everyone. It was built by everyone. So, um, we also conceptualized this as, uh, the gift giving of uh, like making alliances, communities, um, like Tanya just um, just told us um, and it's this idea of um, we really like the phrase the making words heavy so really also um, m your material contribution and really take contribute as like really give something to to make the community um, but as I said already, you, this is also very much an expression of individuality. So, um, and when you do the tour in the Peace Palace, for example, you always get to the Russian vase, uh, which is, I think, 8,000 kilograms, which was actually too heavy for the floor. And rumor has it that that was on purpose. They knew it, but still. Um, so <laughs> it's like stories like that. But those are, are, are more the, the gossip type uh, stories and. We were looking for correspondences about these gifts. And I think we're still looking for also a lot of responses from the state or, or how, how this was organized is not entirely clear. I don't think for us. Um, but what we do see is that the uh, Carnegie Foundation played a crucial role in, uh, sometimes, for example, with the US, they really actively approached them with, um, we have this place for you. It's like one of the central places in the building. And wouldn't it be nice if you would make a series of statutes uh, about uh, peace and justice? And uh, it could be like this. Uh, and then there was for at 
as at least as like as far as we could track, there was very little respo- response from the US. But we would still like to look a bit more into archives there as well to see if there's anything there. But there were a lot of letters from the Carnegie Foundation. Please respond. Please respond. Please send your gift. We're going to open the palace soon. So please respond. Um, but, but this also really showed that they considered the US a very important actor and it got a very important place in the building. Um, and then the other things that are going on were like, states that had a not so great place and they complained about it that nobody would see it so for example Czech Republic on the chandeliers in the library um, Denmark uh, its fountain um, in the courtyard uh, which remarkably so the, the the Danish prince and princess I think I'm, I'm not very good with the royalties <laughs> but they visited the Netherlands um, last year and they also did a photo shoot with their fountain which is actually it's Strange because there are polar bears on that. There's very Greenland colonial connotations there, but they still post. And so, so it's still a, a, a really a thing. Also, um, a sign of, of international cooperation, I think, for, for like symbolically. But they also complained that it was in the wrong place. And mo- the mo- most of the year it's covered because it cannot stand the cold, which is really. <laughs> funny with uh, polar bears <laughs> um but but really the 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 house days wanted to make a physical fingerprint eh? and and they wanted to receive praise and they wanted to be on public display japan i think like i think the general opinion is that they give the most beautiful gift so the te- tapestries and uh, which like thousands and thousands of people worked on for day and night because it's a weaving technique that you cannot let go of the of the fabric because then everything uh, unravels. So it was really hard labor went into that. So it's really also um, in terms of making words heavy, this was really in in many terms uh, a big contribution. And they were very much on time. Uh, and of course, there are also a lot of uh, theories uh, or a lot of things to be said about the political position of Japan in that time and how they really wanted to claim their place on the world stage, uh, etc. So there you have all these, um, these, these connotations, colonial, um, uh, issues. Of course, the Netherlands, uh, we found correspondence in the Netherlands on, uh, shall we not show some of our fine wood from uh, Indonesia because we want to showcase our great colonies. Well, that's not done now, but really the colonies themselves as 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 independent gift givers were really absent. Um, so I think those things are really clear in um, in the building and in the gifts. Yeah, so it's these, these also these paradoxes that transpire then, right? So on the one hand, it's the gifts as um, uh, as a visible fetish of international solidarity, as uh, uh, Malar calls it, um, but also as a presentation of oneself, right? So how do you want to present yourself as a member state, as a sovereign member state of this uh, international community? Um, and then again, as we already mentioned, this this paradox between the grand ideals and then the mundane and nitty gritty details of actually making it happen, how to receive the gifts. And for instance, with regard to the fountain, there was also the Danish fountain. There was also a huge discussion because then it had to be mm-hmm. connected to the uh, water. How do you call it? The yeah, the water mains. The, yeah. yeah, and then it was like, okay, we need so we need like a a a a, a tube. Ooh that connects the fountain to the who's going who's to pay, pay for, for that it. Yeah. right and then there's correspondence on that so it's 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 this kind of going up and down 
this this idea to the to the nitty gritty details that that we found very very interesting. I, I was really interested in your paper by what's left is both said and unsaid. It's said in your uh, footnotes when you engage with authors from twelve and those who question the status of states and who's in and who's out of the international community. And, you know, it comes through when you talk about who's deciding to be a little bit later when it comes to sending the gift mm. or ignoring correspondence. Um, and now with your discussions on the colonial, let's say, aftershock that we still feel today about you know, what type of gifts are coming from where, um, who wasn't invited to give gifts? Or was it really an egalitarian invitation? to build this international community and make it heavy? Well, to the member states, right? But then who the member states were yeah. was, of course, an exclusive club. Exactly. So uh, it was very much uh, um, this circumscribed idea of, uh, of, of the composition of the international community. And that's what is reflected also in the in the gift giving i think the so the vow was this, this peace conference so particularly uh, who was present there uh, but what you see as well is that the palace receives gifts also uninvited gifts okay also private parties or organizations they send gifts and they're all also um so the carnegie foundation sends a lot back Actually, this is not good enough, um, especially when private parties send okay. those. So not so much on state gifts. I think so. If you look at the list of states that gave something to the palace, it's quite long and it's quite comprehensive. So I think the the big absent parties are the colonies, indeed. To like not not that there were no gifts from from colonies, but they were always given as colonies, right? So so so. That's they were that. there as objects in a sense, right? And yeah, it was absolutely. the colonizer who decided yes. what would be given from the colonies. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And then there is also of course the difference between like the the building materials that were donated or is it artworks? And from the Netherlands there are a lot of different gifts. So it's both materials, artworks, etc. So it's also very unequal distribution of who gives what and then also there's when you're there it's not that there are like these little cards like this was given by um, this state so it's in that sense it's it's maybe also less um less visible and there are a few iconic gifts that that have a good story that are now um still very uh visible for the for the for the public although it's also of course like there are tours but only for a few people. So yeah. it's not very feasible in that sense. And when it is, you wrote also that there is a certain, um, let's say, evidence of Western culture in it, right? So the stained glass windows, right? In, in uh, Yeah, so especially um, <laughs> when you when you consider that they really said there, there should be no religious connotation um, whatsoever. And then there's... Like, Christ statutes, <laughs> really the iconography. Um, and, and, um, Daniel Litwin wrote about the windows, which is a really great piece. Uh, I, I highly recommend. Yeah. So the Christian overtones are everywhere. So it's not, uh, <laughs> it's yeah. not absent uh, at all. The, the reason I ask is, okay. So maybe we'll move to the final question. Mm. Um, why should international lawyers care about the materiality of the international community? 
Uh, but I don't mean this as a, uh, what's it called, a combative sense. I, mm-hmm. I agree with mm-hmm. your paper. What is it that the international lawyer can gain from thinking about, you know, the, the making heavy of this international community and this ideal of international justice and how it came to be? Well, because international law is more than, than just the text and, and the jurisprudence. Right. So in a sense, it's, it's, it's moving, uh, from, I mean, to use a very traditional distinction from the law in the books into law in action. And this is, uh, this is a way in which you can see that law is, is materializing also, um, and, and constituting the international community as we, uh, as we argue in our, in our paper. And I think it, I mean, it fits very well with the materiality turn the material turn if you want to speak in terms uh, in international law so the whole idea of how law comes to matter is one interpretation then there's the jesse um homan and and daniel joyce uh, objects book of international law where you see an interest in what objects do in international law and how how objects discipline uh subjects into international law and and those those studies are, are are done more frequently so we really realize i think that 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 law gets to do what it does through objects as well and also th- that the point with the international community is that it needs a physical reference to be uh, and it becomes by by enacting it through also material material ways how did you feel when the ICJ started engaging via Zoom? I think that I think that's a fantastic, um, a f- fascinating way also to test theories of performativity and mm. also indeed of materiality. Uh, I think there's um, there's a lot. There was already no, not a lot, but there is um, an architecture and law movement where the move to digital was not only. Uh, in international law and not only in COVID times, it already is happening. And there is a lot of um, research done uh, also how it affects um, inclusivity. And um, I think those questions really come up when, when they move to, um, to to digital. Also for me, the question of the public, I, I have always found interesting and that also changes uh, when, when this happened. I think, yeah, maybe not to answer the question, but say to say that this really brings up these questions and brings out these questions of physicality in a very interesting way. I also really was really fascinated by these pictures of judges with masks, um, because that indeed also changes the, the ritual and it doesn't in a way. But then you had these pictures of this. Um, and this is, of course, another layer that I find interesting. There were pictures posted of judges with a mask on Twitter. And then there is also this another public that is uh, engaged. Why would you be, be interested in that? So I think this is very, yeah, this, this also makes, makes it even more relevant to ask questions about the physicality and how it was deemed necessary. Like Bertha von Suttner said, we need a home, a physical home. Can we now move to the digital without any changes because it is already there, the home? Or, or not, you know, I don't know. I think. And also, questions. also what it does to the ritual. Yes. Um, and, and to the theater part of international law. So you were referring to, you know, lawyers and, and the, the gowns and wigs in, in some traditions. Um, but maybe from a personal experience, I remember the, the, the first time I had a, a PhD defense on Zoom. 
And uh, the first time was was really soon after the the lockdown and. Um, in the Netherlands, you're supposed to wear gowns as a professor. And, uh, but well, we didn't have them at home because they were at uni. So the first time we did the defense, you know, in our regular clothes. And, uh, well, I was happy that that was the case. And then the second time we actually, it was a, a couple of months into the lockdown and we could have obtained our gowns. So everyone was wearing their gown and somehow it worked. It made this into a more special affair than just a Zoom meeting, right? Because, you know, we were all fully dressed and we had the defense and I thought it was really nice. I thought, oh, we really get this kind of festive, ritualized atmosphere, even if we're doing this on Zoom. But then the defense was over and I had to push the button, leave the meeting, which I did. And as soon as I did... I felt so silly. It's like, here I am in my office wearing a gown and a silly hat. And kind of the spell was gone, right? So that was a very concrete experience of how far you can push a ritual. So somehow, as long as we did it together within this Zoom meeting and we did the theater and the performance and the script, it worked. And then I left the meeting and it was like, you know, this is a stupid, like, uh, you know, as if I was just... Um, how do you call it? A verkleedpartijtje? <laughs> As if I was just a child, right? Playing to be uh, a, a fireman professor. or whatever. Yeah. 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 So, so that was for me very... Uh, I was then already working on ritual theory and on, on ritualized practices. It was a very interesting experience to see how that works. This yeah. kind of spell. How you that, felt it. That you need. Yeah, how you bodily experienced it. Yeah. yeah. And practically, of course, there's questions of concentration and uh, like your attention span is really different on Zoom and also believability. Um, people who sound great in, in person and look silly on Zoom. I mean, it happens. So there's, there's psychological because research. Because they have the wrong settings of the computer or the wrong lightning. And then, you know, this um, famous professor looks like a very small somewhere in the corner of the screen. And yeah, kind of what but I read does. concerning research yeah. on, on how defendants were um, deemed guilty more often online yeah. than offline. You know, there are re there is research like mm. that that is concerning. Well, And of course, you should not romanticize the courtroom, I don't think. But, but it opens up a whole area of questions that we forgot to ask for a while yeah exactly so i think that's great in a way great that we get to ask those questions so, so maybe then let's end by talking a bit about the questions you're still going to ask so talking about future research i think i mean i've spoken to Sophia before where you know she was itching to get back into the archives <laughs> yes where, what are the next steps what is what are you interested in finding out what documentation are you excited to dive into I think at the moment we're really interested in, in the design itself. So, um, we looked at the gifts and, and the gift of, uh, Carnegie. And now we want to look at the architects and the design. And we're really keen on getting, um, explanation of architects on their designs. And that's not the easiest thing to obtain, apparently. But, um, yeah, this translation of ideals into building, I think we find interesting at, at this very moment. But then still from that angle of the bureaucracy and who gets to decide on which elements and, um, and these, uh, the transnational dynamics. Yes. So absolutely. it's, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. 
and and then there is a whole lot more. So so we presented this paper at several occasions, and whenever we presented it, there were people with ideas like, oh, and you could also look into this and look into that. So at one point we had the feeling uh, this is probably going to turn into a, a book project, uh, but we have had so much fun um, uh, doing this. Um, actually, at, at at the moment when we were working on this piece, I was the uh, Dean for Education at my faculty during Corona time. So mm -hmm. that was a very <laughs> hectic time. And this was really my time away and my, my pleasure time where I could just look, go into these uh, archives and discover all these wonderful quotes. And sometimes it even read like a soap series. Yeah, it does. And it is discovering and it's the yes. handwriting and the also speaking of materiality the very holding the letters oh, yes. even if it's like 20 letters about the wrong bricks yeah. i mean it's <laughs> interesting or just, or just it, turns in, yes. it turns out it is it, it's actually yeah. also this uh, this discussion about the taxes you know i've never been particularly interested in tax law and then it becomes really juicy and interesting uh, but also this discovery where you where you know that there must be this letter and at the back side there is this handwritten note by carnegie and then When you actually discover it, find it, it's like a treasure. And here, actually, Corona was 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 helpful also during the the research because, uh, so so the downside of a project like this, we were so so much dependent on letters. But of course, if you go to the archive, they only have one part of the co correspondence, right? They only have the letters they received uh, that person, and not the ones they send off. So you need to look at a lot of different places. Um, and for for the uh, Carnegie um, archives, uh, there were several uh, libraries in uh, in the US that, that had parts of, of the archives that were of interest for us. And because of Corona, they had this, this service where every researcher could get... Uh, no, so, so the employees of the library would donate... Uh, one or two hours per month for every research. So you could just send them like, I need these, these and these and these files. And they would spend one or two hours per month to just scan everything for you. And you would just receive everything in your <laughs> inbox. And yeah, then I would, excellent. you know, I would receive these letters like, But did you also look at the backside? Because I think on the backside of this letter, there actually is something. And then you receive this email with a picture and you see the, the handwriting of Carnegie where he is making this, 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 uh, uh, he is sharing his worries about being obtrusive mm -hmm. and it's like, ah. You know, it feels like it feels like a treasure hunt. Yeah, I was going to say treasure yeah, hunt. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. it's like a treasure hunt. So, uh, yeah, uh, very, very much to be recommended to everyone mm -hmm. to 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 go into archives because it's so much fun. Well, um, in that sense, I'm also going to join the chorus uh, book project. Yes, please. And uh, <laughs> of course, we look forward to uh, book series. More about no, book series. <laughs> Indeed. Film. Then Net film, Netflix. Hollywood. We thought Netflix. Yeah. As it turns out, you also get more royalties for ah, Netflix series. There we go. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. All right. Um, so, listen, thank you so much to both of you for joining me on this podcast thank and you. for sharing your knowledge. Thank you so much for inviting us. It's been fun. To hear more of these fascinating stories, as well as learn more about the building of the Peace Palace, I highly recommend you go and read the full article by Professor Albert and Dr. Stoke in the London Review of International Law, which you can access via the link provided in the description of this episode. And I look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Hate Courts Dialogue Series podcast. Thank you.